to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stack. Holy cow, you guys, we are already in the month of May. So for some of us, that means we have to start thinking about job applications for next year. And today's episode, we have Dr. Anthony Llewellyn on the show. He is an expert on CVs and interviews, uh, which he will explain why um, as you listen to the interview. I just wanted to preface this episode by saying that this is not a sponsored episode. We do mention that he runs his own business, Advanced Med, and he also runs uh, paid workshops. But I met Anthony uh, through one of his workshops because I was an attendee. Um, I paid for my ticket. I absolutely loved uh, the things that he was Uh, teaching and and information he was providing and I thought it would be a great idea to get him on the show to ask for some tips for those of you who uh, don't know where to start. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Hi Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on Junior Doctors Corner. Welcome. Thanks Dana, it's it's good to be here. So for those of us who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you or getting to know you, can you please tell us a bit about yourself and your company, uh, Advanced Men? Sure, love to. Um, So I'm Anthony. Um, My background uh, is I'm from Newcastle, um, which is the land of the Wabakal people. Uh, And I'm a a proud dad and husband of two, uh, husband and proud dad of two boys. Um, That's kind of the most thing that things are important to me before I talk about my medical background. Um, uh, I'm a psychiatrist by background, but even when I was doing psychiatry, I was very fascinated by other aspects of human behaviour, I guess, and uh, that led me into a kind of a, an interesting journey in, in medicine as a career, initially in kind of medical administration and management, uh, solving a bunch of problems around doctor recruitment in psychiatry, which for those who know about psychiatry, it's a hard field to get people to train in and get people to, to work as consultants in. And I managed to have a few successes in those areas and learn a few things along the way, um, so much so that I kind of then moved on to sort of bigger kind of workforce roles. A few years ago, I had a really exciting opportunity to um, be kind of the first uh, medical director at a place called HEDI, the Health Education and Training Institute, which is kind of a component of New South Wales Health that looks after all the training for the New South Wales Health staff. So I've managed things like you know, a thousand internship applications per year and a bunch of training networks and got to design or involved in designing a whole lot of um, programs for training and also things around improving the quality of medical management. And that was a really, really good opportunity. And that sort of then led me into education. Uh, And so in the last couple of years, I've been sort of back in Newcastle, uh, having worked in Sydney for four years focusing on education. So I work part-time at the university and part-time my health service doing a bunch of training stuff. Um, but my passion has really come around to this issue of 
um, trying to improve how we how we manage doctors in the health service. I think as doctors ourselves, we're not generally very good managers. We don't get trained a lot about it. We don't don't even know sometimes we're making bad errors. And then as um, coming through the system in terms of managing our own careers, I just have seen so many um, issues for really good doctors not having things like a uh, a CV that actually sells them well in the job market or even thinking about the need to practice for for interviews, which can be very competitive. So um, in the last couple of years, we've set up this business advancement, myself um, and Neil Gobin, who you would know, Dana, um, who's one of the co-founders of the Print Conference. Uh, we've found that there's a lot of interest from uh, trainee doctors and now also international doctors and specialist doctors in getting some help around managing their medical careers. So so I guess that's kind of a long <laughs> roundabout way of me saying that at the moment um, my focus is um, helping other doctors to manage their medical careers. And so we do that through the Advanced Med website. That's advancedmed.com.au. Uh, we run workshops. We've got one coming up on the 29th of June in Sydney. Uh, and that's about, you know, starting from preparing a CV all the way through to practising interview questions. Uh, we... We have a lot of people contact us for help with things like interview prep, so I do a lot of coaching around that or fixing up their resume or CV. Um, and I've been also blogging and vlogging on YouTube. So um, about a year ago I started up a YouTube channel, Career Doctor, which uh, is now at 1,700 uh, subscribers at this point. Um, I'm getting a lot of interest again from people that are interested in understanding some of these sort of core job skills, which... I guess just don't seem to be taught in medical school or in postgraduate training very effectively. Yeah, um, I can certainly vouch for the service that you've provided through AdvanceMed. I've been to one of your workshops when I was an intern and wow, my goodness, how much I did not know about CVs and interviews and I was just typing away furiously at my laptop, just soaking it all up. And I really do wonder because with CVs and interviews, skills it's such it's so essential in um being a doctor because we go through exams and training uh to come out the other end to become a specialist why do you think medical schools don't teach us this stuff or even like at hospital level why don't the hospitals teach us or our interns how to do all this I think it's a very good question and it gets back to another interesting area that I've been looking at in my research. Um, I'm currently trying to do a PhD in my spare time, uh, which I have very little, but um, I'm looking at this issue of work readiness in medical graduates and what you often see from the employer perspective is this perception that um, medical students aren't being graduated from medical school uh, as quote-unquote work-ready, whatever that means. Um, mm. And I say whatever that means because if you actually look for a definition of work-readiness in interns, there is none. That's part of my <laughs> research. Um, so the, you've got this perception from one side that the medical schools should be making the students better prepared. Um, and what they often um, are talking about is not the clinical knowledge or the skills or how to put in an IV or that sort of stuff, although sometimes that's a problem too, but that can be easily fixed. It's more about the how to be a member of the work team, uh, to know to put your timesheets in on time, to know how to apply for the next job, to know who to go to if there's a problem, all those sort of things that are very important um, 
for both organisations and people to succeed in organisations. Uh, and I actually think, you know, it, it's, it would be wrong to suggest that the medical schools aren't teaching this sort of stuff, but one of the perverse things is we've got this system in Australia where 99% of all medical graduates uh, get an internship. Um, uh, I know there's been some concern over the last few years about, you know, the, the, the number of interns available. But when you look at the data and, um, you know, all the graduates coming through medical school, first of all, um, all the domestic students are still guaranteed a, an intern place. Uh, and then most of the international students who come to Australian medical schools do end up getting an intern position here or somewhere else if, if, um, uh, if they apply internationally as well. So that's interesting because in every other profession, once you, well, prior to graduating from university, you actually have to go into the job market. You kind of have to have a CV ready, you have to be applying for things. Um, yet, you know, we've got this protected status for medical students. And I benefited from that. Um, but I think the problem is it sets off a start where we don't think about these things and there's kind of, I can wait till later. And then so you get interns and residents like where you were at one of the workshops a couple of years back thinking, oh, my goodness, I suddenly have to actually apply for a job where other people might be competing against me and there's only five of them or something like that. You know, who do I go to? Where, where do I learn this stuff? Yeah, I think there's kind of the, the system doesn't really promote these what I call core job skills. Uh, uh, and there's there's really... Often, you know, you, you might have some local contacts. So I know I've found from talking to a number of training doctors that they might have a really good um, director of medical services or director of training who's good at this sort of stuff in their local hospital. But then we find people coming to our workshops where they've found that they haven't really been able to get that local support. So the sort of uh, skill base of the training people that are supporting the trainee doctors varies a lot in this, um, mm. in this area. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so having um, dealt with a lot of junior doctor applications through Hedy, your time at Hedy, what was the most common mistake junior doctors make when it comes to writing CVs and how can they fix it? If I was going to say the probably the, my favourite mistake, and there's a lot there's a, there's there's a lot I could cover here, but I think the probably the the, the big mistake anyone can make with putting together their CV is not showing it to someone else. And I say this because there are a lot of other mistakes that you can make, but often if you show it to someone else, they will pick up those mistakes. And, it's you know, this is an important document to get right. Um, the sad thing is that you'll probably spend several hours, particularly the first version, uh, and even every other, next time you should spend a few hours because each time the CV should be tailored to the job that you're applying for. Um, um, but you'll spend all this time putting it together and you'll be sweating over and you'll have so many revisions, you'll start to miss things mm. <laughs> uh, and your proofreading will be will go off and you'll, you'll kind of feel that you're talking authentically about yourself or you've explained yourself um, because you do need to use words and narrative in your CV, by the way. Um, that's something else that people don't realise. Right. Um, having someone else look at it, they will pick up some of that stuff and I'll give you sort of a... Um, independent perspective on it. Now, uh, you have to be careful with that. Uh, I would always say preferably get someone who is involved in selection to review your CV 
um, not just anyone um, right. because the opinion you get uh, is really important. So you want someone who sees a lot of these things, who kind of has a feel for what is a good CV and what is a not so good CV and, and maybe even has some examples to show you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and bear in mind that you've spent all this time putting it together and you've got some feedback on it. The first time someone looks at it, um, the the amount of time they spend looking on it is so infinitesimally smaller than the amount of time you spend on it. Um, yep. it's, it's around seven seconds. Uh, wow, that's, that's not a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it used to be six seconds, but... Uh, <laughs> so we, we somehow gained an extra second. <laughs> yeah. So the, there's there's a study done by uh, an HR group called The Ladders, um, which you can find on the internet. Uh, they did the original one. They basically got a whole bunch of recruiters looking at CVs online with eye tracking um, software. And they worked out, you know, the the average time and what, also what they were looking for. Um, they've repeated that recently and they say the average has gone up to 7.2 seconds. So, But anyway, it's not a lot of time. And so whether it's six seconds or ten seconds, it's very crucial that not only is the document correct and accurate, there's no typos, grammatical issues, formatting problems, etc. cetera, uh, when someone goes through it suddenly, it also needs to have all the important information on the front page so that you don't um, miss out being moved from the CV pile into the not-for-interview pile. Um, so you need to also know what are the crucial things that um, this, the person reviewing that CV are looking for to make that determination. So, yeah, the, the ultimate goal of your CV is to get you an interview. Um, it can do other things for you, but if it doesn't get you that interview, then it hasn't achieved its own. Mm, that's really great advice, Anthony. Thank you. And your other area of expertise, which um, you alluded to earlier, is to help doctors improve their interview skills. So what is the most common interview question that gets asked on selection panels and how can junior doctors prepare for it? Yeah, um, that's a difficult question to answer, uh, Dana, because every panel will be different. Um, there are some common types of questions and there's some common scenarios that you need to be prepared for, um, but it will vary. Um, and you, you also need to sort of be thinking about researching that part of the process as well. Uh, I guess if I step back and think about one of the, the most common mistake uh, I see both training doctors as well as specialist doctors making in this process is not taking the interview process seriously. Um, it's it's interesting because we've gone through medical school, we've gone through postgraduate training, we've done all these, you know, face-to-face clinical type exams, which are essentially the same thing. Um, uh, yet we don't conceive of the interview as kind of a test. And it is. You compete and it's slightly different tests because not only are you competing against yourself like you are in the most medical schools and postgraduate training courses, uh, programs, but you're now competing against other people who are likely to be almost good, if not better than you. Um, Mm. uh, And so you can improve your performance Mm -hmm. by practising. So most selection processes in medicine come down to three key elements. Um, One is usually your application CV. Often that's just used as a 
process of determining whether you get an interview or not, but sometimes that's taken into account in the overall process as well. The second one is the interview and the third one is the references. That's generally it. I mean, there are some other things in some circumstances, but most selection processes are around that. So um, you need to think about what sort of result you want from the interview performance and how you can get there. Uh, and so practice. Um, uh, get a bunch of questions. We've got some on our website, by the way. We've got about mm-hmm. 420 at the in the question bank for various, you know, for various jobs, RMOs, physician trainees, etc. They're free to find and download. I've got some blog posts where I also talk about how to answer some of the common interview questions. Um, I recommend getting a list of scenarios that might come up because. Uh, Rather than telling you what I think the most common question is, I think you need to think about what the most common examples you might need to have prepared right. for the interview because um, most medical interview selection panels are trained these days to ask what's called a behavioural question. Um, and so the what is a behavioural question? Uh, it's essentially asking you a question about something that's important to the role that you're being selected for by asking you to generate a past example of how you've dealt with that particular scenario or issue in the past. Uh, And the science and the philosophy behind that is that past behaviour predicts future behaviour. It's probably a little bit... um, the evidence behind that is probably a little bit overstated, but it's it's certainly the case that... um, Asking for past examples can improve the, the the overall validity and of the selection process. So you will get a question like, um, and this is one of the common questions: <laughs> Can you tell us about an example in the past where you had to deal deal with conflict in the workplace? Yeah. Uh, and then you might get some additional uh, information like, uh, what was the situation? What was your role in it? Uh, how did you deal with it? What was the outcome? Um, so you need to have some examples uh, of those common scenarios where you might be asked. This is what I do often in my coaching is we, we go through some of those scenarios and I ask people what their examples are for some of these situations. And we, we often find that sometimes the example's kind of probably not a good one to give, but often it's actually just how the person packages it and talks about it. Right. Um, and the one thing that's often missing is whether they talk about the result of their behaviour or not. So often people are very good at describing the situation, what their the role in it was, um, but fail to actually tell what happened and, and sell it as a successful outcome. You, you need to think about those examples, those scenarios, and then actually practice telling the story because it's very awkward talking about yourself. Yep. Um, most people find it difficult. Mm. Um, but if you practice a few times, it's actually a lot easier. So... So I don't know if I kind of came to a common interview question for you there, Dana, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, my, my meta message there, I guess, is is think about uh, examples and, and practice telling those stories. No, that's really great advice. I mean, at the end of the day, being able to sit through interviews and do well in them is a separate skill itself like you could be the best doctor ever in uh, the whole of Australia and if you did not practice uh, how to send interviews you might as well just be an average doctor because you can't convey what you can do and what skills you have to the panel 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess that's, yeah, that is my, again, a key point here. Um, you're right. Um, uh, you might think that you're the ideal candidate for the job. Uh, you might have been kind of dreaming about this special position for some time. You might have been doing all these great things to head towards that, studying the right things, doing the right courses, getting the right experience, all those sort of things, helping out on a voluntary basis, doing some research, whatever it is. Um, but there will be other people <laughs> doing the same thing. Uh, and the the panel only get 15 to 30 minutes with you on an interview to, to decide. Now, it's very artificial, uh, and sometimes they know you, so that helps. Uh, and sometimes your referees can talk you up, but it's your opportunity <laughs> to, to put forward your case. Uh, and so it's your interview. Uh, um, and... and you, you should sort of think about what you want to convey in that interview. There's, there's generally at least one question at the end, by the way, which gives you an opportunity to add some more information. Uh, we often get asked, should I ask a question at the end of the interview? Um, sometimes I suggest no because uh, often people have had a lot of opportunity to find out about the job and it sort of comes across as a bit forced, but instead, sometimes instead of asking that question mm-hmm. back to the panel, what you can do is go back to one of your answers and add to it if you think you need to, or point out something that you think you weren't given the opportunity to um, put across to the to the panel. And also, a hot tip is uh, you should have all those great examples in your CV. Mm-hmm. So that if they if the panel missed something when they're talking to you in the interview, at the end you can say, by the way, I just wanted to also remind you that in my CV I talk about uh, my research background and I know part of this job is about research and I just wanted to highlight some of the achievements there because we didn't have an opportunity to talk about that. And I'm happy to clarify any of that now with you um, or you can look at my CV. So that just cues the panel to have another flick back through your CV and might just get you a couple more brownie points or bonus points um, from the interview. Yeah. Thank you for that, Anthony. I love how you always just drop so many hot tips, especially during your workshop. There was just so many. Um, So for those of you who are looking to boost your CV or sharpen your interview skills, I highly, highly recommend Anthony's workshop. Yeah, um, we're holding one on the 29th of June in Sydney. We're actually doing a few private ones as well, but the the public's on the 29th of June and you can um, actually get tickets to that now um, off the advancedmed.com.au website. But before you do that, um, for your listeners, Dana, we've got a bit of a special deal. Um, So if they go to advancedmed.com.au and then put in a backslash junior doctor's corner, you go to a secret special landing page where you can get a ticket to the medical careers workshop for $30 off the current price. Um, I think tickets are two ninety at the moment with the early birds. So that'll drop you down to two sixty. Plus um, you get our free, uh, well, you get our CV course for free, which is $90. Now, some people might not be able to get to the workshop. Not everyone's in Sydney or able to get to Sydney. Mm. That's fine. Um, you also have an option of getting that CV course for half price, so $45 if you go to that link. So, um, yeah, uh, just check that out and um, happy to answer any questions people might have about that. There's a process for doing it on the website too. 
Thank you so much for that, Anthony. That's very kind of you to share that. Now, before we finish up, um, because this podcast focuses on doctors' well-being, I was just wondering if you could tell us one or two things that keep you sane in your very evidently crazy busy life. I got well. Well, I've got kids, so um, you, you you have to focus on them and sort of sometimes work around them. And both my wife and I work, uh, and we juggle business schedules. So. One one thing I've found very helpful for us to remain in sync and make sure we get to the important things is to have a shared calendar. Uh, so I'm an Apple user, so we use um, uh, what's the, uh, the family calendar, or whatever. That's, that's iCal. Yeah. iCal, yeah. But there's there's a family shared calendar you can set up with that. So um, I would suggest if you're part of a team, <laughs> uh, think about having a shared calendar where you put all the important things in, so you don't book things on top of them, and you've got your work. <laughs> so that's probably one thing that keeps me sane. If I didn't have that, I think we'd. My wife and I would be spending a lot more time synchronising calendars, so that's one thing. <laughs> um, the the other thing I think is, I, you know, there's always moments in my life where I kind of feel like I've got too many jobs and mm-hmm. too much on. What I then tend to do is think about how I can clear some space, um, even if that's a couple of weeks in advance, you know, look at what appointments or whatever I've got in the future, what commitments and just block out as much time around that for a couple of weeks as I can to sort of give me the time to catch up. You know, also every now and then look ahead to see what's coming up so that you can be planning for it and using your spare time to do that. So, I mean, I tend to be a fairly fairly organised person around that sort of stuff. But I, And I think I've learned some of these skills over time as a way of coping with busyness. But, um, yeah, I think uh, every trainee doctor can kind of learn some of this stuff uh sometimes you find that you're not doing quality time you're doing quantity time Mm. um and if you're in that sort of situation where your list is ever expanding uh you you probably need to seek some help from someone who seems to have it a bit more under control and find out what they're doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) to stay on top of things and some of it's about actually not taking every task on um some of it's actually dedicating more time for the quality stuff. Uh, and some of it's actually learning how to delegate effectively as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Anthony. That was a gem episode with really, really good advice. And thank you, Anthony. Thanks, Dana. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.